Father, we are grateful and thankful for Jesus this morning. We're thankful for the good start that we've had here today and fellowshipping, good night's sleep for some, I'm sure. Good meal this morning. Lord, we are indeed a blessed people. We have so much to be thankful for. So, Lord, we come to you and we want to praise you, honor you before we even get going here. Lord, we ask you and believe that you will bless your word. Lord, I pray that uh, I wouldn't uh, be an obstacle that would keep people from understanding or responding to you, to your Holy Spirit in their lives. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for the vision that the men and women of these churches have had to have a place in a time like this. Lord, it's just incredible. I'm kind of blown away just by all the people that are here, the organization, the, the folks that have come to speak. And uh, Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for the privilege of being here with my wife, Penny, for this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. All right, guys, I hear just a little ring there. So I'm thinking if you take a little bit of the top end off, I don't want to uh, distract you or to irritate you any more than I intend to. <laughs> no, I don't intend to do that. I know a preacher, um, in fact, he just passed away uh, within the last week. He used to say this. He said, if uh, somebody doesn't get up and walk out when I'm preaching, I feel like I've been a total failure. So uh, <laughs> help yourself, you know, whoever wants to do that. And then you'll make me feel good when you leave, all right? No, I'm just kidding you. But I know what he's saying. He's saying that we ought not to be preaching and being always politically or ecclesiastically correct so that we don't offend anybody. Now, I don't ever say anything to intentionally offend anybody, but I think the Bible does. I think Jesus does. And so when I uh, quote the Bible... Uh, I think that it could offend some people. It's offended me on numerous occasions, and uh, then I have to deal with that. I object, I object to the idea that there was only one decision here. Now, I'm not correcting your pastor. I'm not correcting Sam, but listen. Let me just say this. Here, let's try this out. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Yes or no? Some of you are tr having trouble with that. Now I see why we didn't have very many decisions. Let me try that again. Lay up for yourselves, don't lay up for yourselves, treasures upon earth where uh, rust, where moth and rust doth corrupt, but lay up treasures in heaven. Yes or no? Yes. You just made a decision. We heard that last night. We heard all kinds of passages where Mark just spelled it out. It's yes or no. It's black or white. It's where, are we, where do you fall on this? Now, the fact of the matter is, practically speaking, unfortunately, many of us don't fall on either side, and that was his point. We do need to move in the right direction, do we not? And not just up a rung. We need to get to position number Five and what he, my life is hid in Christ. My life is the life of Christ. That's the way we're supposed to live and not get all tied up on the things of this uh, world. We're not to love the things of this world. So my point is just simply this. 
Every time you hear a sermon, every time someone stands behind a pulpit, or for that matter, maybe somebody street preaching somewhere, we make decisions on what we hear. We may not think of them that way, but you all made decisions last night. Every time Mark brought up one of those com contrasts and comparisons, you heard, read on the screen, you saw the verse, and then you either agreed with that or you didn't agree with that. And maybe you wrestled with it a little bit, but I heard him pin you down. He'd say yes or no. And I hear people saying yes. I didn't hear anybody saying no there. It's not, uh, not a good place to do that, obviously. Uh, we would have taken you aside, and you would have been the next decision we would have had. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, anyway, you get, you get my point. We're always making decisions. We're always making decisions. It's not just a one-time thing. I trusted Christ as my Savior a long time ago. I made that decision. But I trust him as my savior every day, many times. Now, not to be born again, I understand that. But to, to trust him, I need to trust him. I need to trust in the Lord with all mine heart and lean not on mine own understanding and all my ways acknowledge him and he'll direct my past. That's not a one-time decision in my life as a Christian. It's something that I do every day, hopefully, and maybe several times a day. You and I are always making decisions. So the next time the pastor gets up and says, how many decisions have we had? You need to think that thing through. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. All the things that Brother Mark talked about last night, that's where the problem is. God will take care of the things if we make his business number one in our lives. Yes or no? Yes. Thank you very, very much. The decisions, write this down, we'll put it in an evangelical newspaper. Hundreds of decisions have been made already today, Thursday in camp. <laughs> Hundreds of decisions. Isn't that right? All right. Let me tell you just uh, a little bit. I, I mentioned, introduced my wife. My wife and I have been married for a long time, and uh, 49 years. We have five children. We have 13 grandchildren, and uh, we have five boys and eight gr uh, granddaughters, five and eight, and uh, you know, gr grandparenthood is not overrated. I want you to know that. If you're looking forward to that, someday it is not overrated. It's a great time. It's a different time in life for us, but we enjoy it very much. In fact, uh, it's probably the most important thing other than the Lord in my wife's life. She loves the grandchildren. You should watch her dote over them. I mean it, too. I feel kind of left out, you know? So, <laughs> that's okay, though. I understand. I love my grandkids, too. I am what I, what I would call semi-retired. Last October 16th was my 70th birthday. When I was 65 years of age, I determined that I would come up with a, some kind of a plan, a succession plan for our church. I didn't want to I didn't want to just one day announce to the deacons or the church, you know, I've had it, I'm leaving, I won't be here next Sunday. I didn't want to do it that way. <laughs> what I wanted to do is I wanted to prepare the church in every way that I possibly could. So around my 65th birthday, I began to pray for my successor. I, ha I had a blank piece of paper, had no idea who that would be. I didn't know how the next five years would go. But, but God answered my prayers and God certainly did a lot of good things in our church during that time. I kept my word, and uh, I stepped down on October 16th 
of last year, and Pastor Kevin Pesky, who is a student from our Bible Institute, someone I had known for many, many years, and was a missionary in Zambia, Africa for 11 years, he became the pastor at First Bible Baptist Church in Rochester, and he's doing a wonderful job. I still work for him. I'm involved in discipleship, I'm involved in teaching and running our Bible Institute, like your Bible Institute at Harvest, so I'm still doing that. I've taught in our Christian school this past year. I was there for three classes a day, every day, for 180 days. I'm not going to do that anymore. did that as a transition thing so Pastor Pesky could get used to the church before he had to get used to the school also. And then I was hired by a friend of mine who's a CEO who owns a couple companies, and he hired me to be a part-time chaplain in his company. And he is a born-again Christian. When I asked him, I said, Kip, what do you want me to do? You know, and he sat and he thought, and he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to win my company to Christ. That was his direct answer to my direct question. So I have all the freedom in the world to talk to people, obviously discreet, discreetly. Not everybody in the company is a Christian. There are some, there are maybe many of them, but I have to be careful in how I address people, but I have the right from the CEO and president of the company to be able to go and get into the spiritual side of life with people, which, by the way, that is the important part of life. I love it when people say, you know, uh, Pastor Grace, I'm just not a religious person, you know. Uh, listen, everybody may not be religious. That's man-made stuff. But everybody is spiritual. Everybody has a certain measure of spirituality. If it's not material, it's spiritual. If it's not material, it is something that is non-physical, beyond the physical. In fact, the term in psychology and philosophy is metaphysical. That means beyond. Love is not something that is physical. Hatred, prejudice, mercy, goodness, compassion, all of those things are concepts, but they're not material concepts. We are all spiritual people. That doesn't mean you go to church or you identify with a denomination, but all of us are spiritual in nature. That's where we have the opportunity to connect with God, and that's where we have our responsibilities with God in our relationship with Him also. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yes or no? Yes, Another decision. Pile them up, Pastor. Let's put those down. Just keep adding these up. Do you really believe that? To grow in grace? I hear a lot about discipleship from Kansas City, from these churches over the years. I've heard it since I've been here. We're growing in our faith. One of the reasons that you've come here is to move forward, is to do more, is to be more for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I like to do when I go to a conference like this, so I, I want to explain what I'm doing, and then I'm going to do it. I, I like to, I'm not the main speaker. The main speaker is here in the evening, and by the way, the lesson that he did last night is incredibly important for you to understand. Some of you maybe for the first time heard a Bible preaching sermon and you may feel like you got a little bit lost. But for those of you who have been saved any length of time, you know that what he addressed last night is the issue. 
one of the reasons why Matthew 6.33 or 1 Peter chapter 3 or whatever the passage is that you quote where you have to make a decision, yes or no, one, one of the reasons is that we don't understand our position in Christ. We don't understand that I am risen with Christ. I am, Galatians chapter 2 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Am I dead or am I alive? What's the answer to the question? Yes. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's another passage of the many in the Bible that just go right along with Pastor Mark's message last night. Wonderful message and a very deep truth that we all need to understand. What happened when you got saved? You were baptized. Now that throws a lot of people off because as soon as people hear the word baptism, they immediately think of water. And that's not true. Those of you that have been around for a while, you know that the word is used several different ways in the scripture. We're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in verse number 13. We were baptized into Christ. And because I am in Christ, the Father looks at George Grace and all of you that have been born again, and he sees Jesus. Thank God he doesn't see me. You don't want to know George. You don't want to know George. George is mean, evil, bad, and nasty. He's a horrible sinner. I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about some other George that you know, although that may be true of him too. <laughs> I'm talking about me. When God the Father looks at George Grace, he sees Jesus Christ. That's where my security is in Christ. Because I have been baptized, I'm immersed, I am in Christ. You'll see that phrase mentioned many, many times in the New Testament, being in Christ. So what happened when I got saved? I was put into Christ, for sure. Brother Mark said there's several verbs in that chapter, in chapter 3 of Colossians, and we're going to study them out. We began to last night, and uh, some of you already see where he's going. I'm sure you got a good idea from his message, and then you began to, you know, kind of thumb down through the rest of that chapter to see those other verbs that he was referencing. They're all so important. Now here is, here's a question I want to ask you. When do you stop growing as a Christian? At what point do you say, you know, enough is enough? Enough is enough. This church stuff, this Bible study stuff, this Bible reading stuff, when is enough enough? When do we stop growing? Now, the fact of the matter is, and I've been in the ministry for over 40 years, I watch people stop growing. I watch people come to a certain place, and it's a little bit different for everybody, and they press the pause button. And then they get distracted with some of the things that Mark talked about last night, and they're half in and half out, or three quarters in, three quarters out, and, and occasionally sometimes people just completely drop out. We understand that. We probably all know somebody like that. So when do you press the pause button? When is enough enough? Do you people understand the great advantage that you have having an emphasis on discipleship the way you do in your churches. Do you understand how important that is? Not all churches are like that. Our church is emphasized 
discipleship for, I don't know, way back into the, probably the beginning of the 1980s, maybe 79 or 80, became very, very important to us. And I have had, over the years, all kinds of pastors ask me about, well, what do you do? What is discipleship? And it's kind of like, what is discipleship? What are we talking about? Why do, we, why do pastors have questions about that? And why, do, why does the term seem so foreign to so many Christians? Decide, oh, you mean, do I, go to a, do, do I go to church on Sunday? Do I attend? Am I a member? Do I? No, no, more than that. Are you, yes or no, growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ today? Is that your intent? Yes or no? Yes. Chalk it up, man. Hundreds of decisions have been made right here at this camp. Are you growing? Well, listen, you have the opportunity. You have a Bible institute. You have discipleship ministries. And I know the people that have come out of Kansas City over the last 40-some years. I know, and many of you are from there. Many of you know people from there. How important it is to be a disciple of Christ, not just a born-again believer. You are to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When does that end? When you're 70, 60, 45, 18? When do we stop? When do we say enough is enough? Let me ask you this. Have you said enough is enough? Look at yourself. Have you had enough? Do you know enough? If you come far enough as a Christian that you really don't need anymore, you don't need to get involved in a Bible institute, a regular discipleship relationship with somebody in some way, do you think that you've arrived? I'm here to encourage you, and this, is, this has been my life for 40 years, I am encourage you to take the next step wherever you are. If you have just become a believer, it's time to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Both of those are important. And I don't think you're going to become more graceful if you don't have more knowledge. And you're probably going to need to have some grace to get some more knowledge. So they kind of go together. You don't get one or the other. They may be a little bit out of balance in your life, but they do uh, go together one with another. So I want to talk to you about that. The Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All Scripture. Why? It's profitable that the man of God may be perfect. And that means mature, to grow up. When are you all grown up as a Christian? When do you get there? How many of you are all grown up as a Christian? You've reached perfection, sinless perfection in your life here. How many of you would... I know you're, some of you are going to say, no, I really don't want to get there, but let me ask you anyway. How many, would how many of you would like to please Christ with every moment and every decision of your life? How many of you would do that? More decisions, Pastor. Look at this. Look at the hands go up there. I see that hand, I see that hand, and I see that hand. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. I appreciate that. See, we're always making decisions. You can't blow those things off. You can't blow a sermon off and sit there, and at the end of the sermon, you know, I'll give them a seven and a half on that one, like you're rating it on a zero to ten scale or something like that. What did you do with it? What did you do with the message? Did you listen to what was said? Did you make a decision personally 
and what was said. Now this is what I, what I want to do. I want to go to 1 Thessalonians with you, and I want to talk about, for the time that I have remaining this morning, I want to talk about the value of discipleship. The value of discipleship. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 3. How much should I grow? How much should I grow? Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul says, and we'll go back to the beginning in a moment, but I want to point this word out to you. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Is there anything lacking in your faith today? Have you arrived? Do you have perfect faith today? Do you trust in the Lord with all thine heart and everything you do? Do you love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself? Do you do that? Do you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Do you set, do you set, those, do you set your affection on things above and not in the things of this earth and all of the things of brother? Do you do that? I don't. I'll be the first to confess that. I have some work to do. I don't have a whole lot of time to be perfected. Some of you have a whole lot more time than I do. Where could you be and what could you know and how could God use you if every day of your life from this point on you made it a point just to do this, to study one chapter of the Bible in a notebook, write your thoughts down from that one chapter and do that every day. You people have the tools computers and all that stuff to be able to take every entry and keep adding to your notebook of what God is saying to you from every chapter and every verse. Now you're 18 years old, you're 20 years of age, I'm going to say that uh, there's 1189 chapters in the Bible, if you, that's going to take you about three years. So you're 18, by the time you're 21, you will have gone through the whole Bible and written notes. By the time you're 21, I didn't get saved until I was almost 26. You're five years ahead of me already. By the time you're 24, you've done this twice through the Bible. By the time you're 27, three times. Where would you be when you're 45 years of age if every day you just took a chapter of the Bible and you wrote what God was teaching you from that? Maybe you use some cross-references, maybe you use some other helps, study helps, whatnot, but you're building your own commentary of the Bible and how God has spoken to you and what he's taught to you. I challenge you to do that. I challenge you to do that. And you have the capacity to do that. You have the tools to do that in this day and age. Years ago, it would have been kind of tough. You'd be erasing this and putting another sheet of paper. Now it's all done on computer. You can move things around here, there, and everywhere. And you can keep adding to your text without going through all of the things that I went through when I was a young man. I've got Bibles that have got notes written in them. I can't even read them anymore. My eyesight is gone. I'm looking at these and I need magnifying glasses. But if I would have had a computer 40 years ago and I could enter these things, they'd be all written out right there in the order in which they're found in the scriptures. Think about that. Anyway, it's just a thought. I know nobody will do it, but it's a good thought. Anyway, all right. Let's go back here. These are some advantages of discipleship and I'll be done, all right? Verse number one of 1 Thessalonians chapter three. And I'm gonna kind of read through and I'm gonna pick words out and comment on them. I'm not gonna give you an outline. Here's my outline here on the screen. This is my outline. 
You say, why is it outlining? It's outlining my body so you can see me, all right? That's it. <laughs> Here I am. Now, and I'm not being, I use PowerPoint all the time in preaching, and I love it. But I wanted to come here, and I wanted to see what the camp was all about. I've not been here. I don't know a lot of you. I wanted to listen to Mark. I've never heard Mark preach. He has a great reputation, but I've never been in his presence. I wanted to hear where he was going to go so that when I got up here, I could compliment what he was saying and not, certainly not contradict what he was saying, but I didn't want to take you off in another direction. I want to keep some uh, continuity in our conference here. So I want to talk about discipleship because once you know you are risen with Christ, the next thing is now to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to move on to perfection. James chapter 1, verse number 4. That's the purpose for the writing of that book. Look at James 1, 4. You can see that's exactly what James wanted. He wanted the perfecting of the saints. So let's go to verse 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, I just couldn't wait any longer, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. So he sends Timothy. He enjoyed the fellowship and the camaraderie of Timothy, his son in Christ, but there was something more compelling than to have a friend at his side. So he says, I'm willing to be alone to send to you somebody that I absolutely trust to teach you the word of God. So when you're in a local church like you folks are in, you have pastors that have learned who the people are that they can trust and entrust you as a student, as a disciple of Christ too. So, your pastor comes along, he says, Brother Tom here, he's a good Christian, he's been part of our church for 12 years now, he knows the word of God, he's a commit. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give him to you to personally disciple you. It could be in a small class, it could be in a small group setting, but your pastor is trusting people that he knows and are proven in the congregation that are going to have your well-being in mind when they teach you the Word of God. You understand that? That's important. If you just go out there and you go on the internet and try to find something to help you out, you may find a lot of good stuff. You may find some stuff that isn't that good either, and your pastor wouldn't recommend you follow. So what does Paul do? He sends the best to disciple. Timothy is going to go back to the church at Thessalonica, and he's going to go back there, and he is going to check them out, help them out, make sure they're going in the right direction. Isn't that responsible? I mean, if you take the time to win someone to Christ, you don't say, well, you're saved now. See you at the, at, at, at the judgment seat of Christ. Bye now. We don't do that. The Bible doesn't teach that. We don't find that anywhere in the Bible that you just cast them off and hope that they make out all right the rest of their life. So he sends Timotheus, our brother, minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel. All of those terms are important. He is a proven individual to Paul. He's proven. That's what your pastor does. He finds proven people to be the teachers, to be the disciples in the church. If you're a new Christian, you need an environment like that to help you. You want to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Oh, okay, there's some more decisions, Pastor. Mark them down. Sounds pretty good out there. We want to do that. So why does this Timothy, why is he sent? He's a fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, to get you 
grounded, as we would say. Basic theological questions. Things like, let's go back through salvation and make sure you understand what it means to be a Christian. Let's make sure that we understand the importance of having a repentant heart. Let's make sure that we understand who Christ is in the Bible. He's not just a prophet, although he is a prophet. He is God manifest in the flesh. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? So a discipler now can take you back through the fundamental orthodox doctrines of Christianity and make sure you've got that to establish you. And then the word comfort in verse 2 shows up. Comfort? What do you need comfort for? Best thing that ever happened to me in my life just happened. I just got saved. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. The second best thing, and I need to hasten to say this, is I married my wife. That's the second best thing, and I mean that. And she would agree that that's the best thing I ever did because getting... <laughs> and let me tell you why. Because if I didn't get saved, you know, I can smile at this, we probably wouldn't be together today. We were married four and a half years. The honeymoon was over when we got saved. Christ rescued us, not only from hell, but he rescued us from each other is what he did at that time. And here we are, 49 years, 45 years later, we're still together. Now, we have our disagreements every now and then, and she's always right and I'm wrong. I know that, but I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm growing in grace. That's my name, growing in grace and the knowledge. Comfort. Why do we need comfort? Oftentimes people get saved and they're not very welcome back in their own home. Their friends don't sympathize with them. In fact, they may criticize them. I remember a couple years ago that got saved in our church. They got saved and they were verbal with their family and grandma said to the kids who had gotten saved, when you have a grandchild, as far as I'm concerned, She's not going to be my granddaughter. I'm disfellowshipping you. I'm disowning you. If you're leaving our organized church, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Whoa! That's a new Christian. What does that do to a new Christian? That can rock your world, my friend, when you are closely tied into your family and then all of a sudden your family totally rejects you because you trusted Christ as Savior and you thought everybody would love to hear that. And they didn't. And they don't. Now you get rejected. When you're newly saved, maybe when you're oldly saved, you need people around you that love you and will comfort you through those difficult times. That's discipleship. We're talking about people who come alongside you. That no man should be moved by these afflictions. It's not a cakewalk, folks. The Bible says just because you get saved, your problems have not ended. There is tribulation. In this world ye shall have tribulation, John 16. Man is born for trouble. As the sparks fly upward, Job said. There's trouble in this world, and you will be rejected. They don't love Jesus. You talk about Jesus, they won't love you. You represent him. You're going to need somebody to be there during the time of afflictions. Of course, the afflictions that Paul's speaking of, these could be the Neronian persecutions. We're talking about people losing their lives. You know, Christians sometimes, oh boy, I sure don't want to go through the tribulation. Hey, there's Christians going through the tribulation right now. Well, not the tribulation, but tribulation. There are Christians who are getting their heads cut off for their faith in Christ right now. Do you think people like that need comfort? 
maybe here in the United States, and I think we do have an awful lot of freedom, but in other places, a lot of places in this world where people don't have freedom to practice their faith, they can't name the name of Jesus Christ, or they're going to be physically and socially persecuted for their faith in Christ. Disciples and disciplers come alongside one another, and they can pray for one another and encourage one another. When my wife is down, hopefully I'm up and I can encourage her. When the opposite happens, the opposite takes place. We've got unity, we've got family, we've got friends, enough friends that when I'm going through a difficult time, there's somebody out there that's doing well and can encourage me. If you want to be a loner out there, you want to be all by yourself, it's tough. It's tough in this world. By the way, God didn't make you to be alone here anyway. Afflictions. Don't you know, he says in verse 3, we're appointed thereunto. Don't, don't be a whiner and complainer. There are afflictions for Christians. It's part, now, we don't suffer very many. We live the life of Riley. Maybe that's probably some of the problem that Mark was addressing last night. We kind of live in the, I don't know if I can do what he did. Let me try to do that. We kind of live here, you know? We're kind of fluid and flexible. We don't want to make decisions. We don't want to get pinned down. So we kind of live in that blah world somewhere. And we get along fine there. Nobody gives us a tough time. Nobody, you know. And so we're tolerated in our culture, in our society. Many of us are tolerated. Not necessarily loved, but tolerated. Because you don't make too many waves. So we're appointed to it. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation. I think I'm checking out of this right now. This is getting too tough. This sounds like Marine Corps boot camp to me is what you're, you're given to me, and I don't think I'm really up to this. There are difficult times, but it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. That's when we really get to know God. That's when we get to know Jesus through the difficult times of our lives. We're going to suffer tribulation, and for this cause, verse 5, when I could no longer forbear, I had to do this, I had to send Timothy, he says there, I sent to know your faith. That's what discipleship is about. You've got a discipler who's helping you and is getting to know your faith, helping you grow, encouraging you, praying with you. Somebody, when you come to church, if you don't know anyone, you can sit with that individual. They introduce you to other good Christian friends of theirs in the church. And before you know it, you start feeling like, man, I fit in. You may feel like you fit in within the first week that you're there because you got somebody that really cared for you as an individual and introduced you to others. That's what discipleship accomplishes. He says, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you. You don't know that the devil is going to be upset at your newfound faith in Christ. You know, the hundreds and thousands of decisions that have been made here in this camp already. You don't think the devil is going to be upset with your decision to grow in the grace and in the knowledge and to set your affection on things above and to lay not up treasure on earth. You don't think, you don't think the devil's going to be upset with all the decisions you've made already here? Or I think you've made here? Or I hope you've made here? Or I'd like to see you make here? 
You don't think the devil's going to be upset with that? Of course he is. And so, Paul is warning this church. He's saying, we have an adversary out there. We have an adversary. And I've sent my friend, Timothy, my disciple, because the tempter may tempt you, and then our labor may be in vain. What happens? You fade into the sunset. You're gone. You're lost. You need someone there to pray with you. You need someone to encourage you. You need a group of people. That's one of the reasons this camp is here, is to get together with people, to fall in love with your churches, to fall in love with Christians, to get to know other Christians, to find out that we're all just people here going through the same things in this life, and to be strengthened in the, in the numbers of our Christian uh, fellowships, our churches. I sent to know your faith, lest our labor be in vain. But now, when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, a good report. Hey, these people are doing good down at Thessalonica. And that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us. Now, I want to I key in on that phrase, desiring greatly to see us. Look at chapter 2, if you would, verse 17. It says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see you. Notice chapter 3, to see you. Chapter 3, look at verse 10. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see you. Three times in one chapter. What's the... What, you know what's the hang-up on this? It's personal contact. We could have sent you a video of the camp this week. We could be up here rolling. I don't know if they do that anymore. Probably not. But you know, you old people know what I'm doing right now. This is my movie camera. And we're taking movies. And we're going to send this movie to all of our friends to see what a wonderful time we had at camp. So you too out there in video land can enjoy what we had at camp. Guess what? They can't. You're here. You're part of this. You are one of the people in this experience. People on the outside are not going to totally understand the good and the bad and ugly of camp. They're just not going to do that. That's why you need to be here. That's why your pastors have encouraged you to be here. It's important to be here, to see one another face-to-face, -face, discipleship, to see face-to-face. -face. Hey, I can send you a bunch of tapes by George Grace from 1978. Boy, will you be a great disciple then. <laughs> I don't even believe what I believed in 1978 anymore. No, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just kidding you, just kidding you. But you understand, being here, your pastor didn't say, hey George, could you send us a video? We're gonna show it on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday morning. He didn't do that, he wants me to be here. Because there's a value in face to face. And talking with you, and getting to meet you. Some of the best things that happened in years gone by in camps that I've been to is the conversations that follow the sermons, the fellowship around the dinner table, the campfire later on, where people get to talk and get to know one another. There's great value in that, beyond the teaching and preaching of God's Word. There's great value in that. We're talking about discipleship. 
What's the value of discipleship? Face to face. Sit in a class with your pastor. Ask him questions. Get close to the man that is leading you. Now, he only has so much time. Everybody can't be his best friend. We know that. But you need to have a little teeny piece of his life. You need to see the reality. That's what he lives every day. It's not just something he shares with you on Sunday morning and then lives a separate life Monday through Saturday. You need to see him. See him. Greatly desiring. Verse 7. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted. The discipler gets comforted. Not just the disciple, not just the learner, not just the student, but the teacher, the discipler is get, gets comforted. As a pastor, let me tell you, I have a couple nightmares, and I don't know about you preachers out here, I have a couple nightmares that I have repeatedly over and over. One of my nightmares is, and pardon me for saying this, but I'm just, I'm just being honest with you. One of my nightmares is I come to the pulpit on Sunday morning and I'm standing there in my underwear. <laughs> now, they do that all the time on TV now. I used to be, get embarrassed by that, but they do that all the time now. So maybe it won't bother me if I show up in my underwear some Sunday morning. I don't know. But I always felt like I would show up in my underwear. Here's another one. I show up on Sunday morning and there's nobody there. There's nobody there. And then, nope, I'm on time. And no one's here. No one wants to hear what I have to say. Well, I knew this was going to happen sooner or later if I kept preaching. I'd get rid of them all. I started out with 150, and I got the church down to me and my wife. We're all that's left. And by the way, she's in the nursery. <laughs> she's not even here. Anyway. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted. We get comforted. The teacher gets comforted. My point is simply this. The teacher gets encouraged when there are people that love the Word of God. There's nothing like having new people coming into your church and seeing the hunger on their face, their excitement as they learn the Word of God. That encourages everybody. And that's what the pastor is there for. That's what the leadership is there for. They want to see people grow. They want to see people move forward in the relationship with God. And when that's happening, there's there's great satisfaction and joy. When it isn't happening, pastors begin to question their value, not only their value, but the value of everything they're doing. What am I doing? No one shows up. Even the people that are most faithful, they don't care. Nobody, nobody wants to be discipled. What's wrong with my congregation? What's wrong with my people? Have they all pressed the pause button? Have they grown enough? Are they doing enough in their personal relationship with God? Are they? Pastors have tough times. I've been one for a while. I've known. I've known some of the things that pastors go through. I've gone through some of them. Well, look at verse 8. We live if we stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks? Can we render to God again for you for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before God? That's Paul saying, I am joyful, I am excited, I am motivated, I am enthused because this is a people business. 
Churches are people factories. They're producing Christian people who love God, who will grow in grace, who will set their affection on things above. They'll lay aside the things of this earth and they'll focus in on true spiritual truths. He says, night and day, praying. You need a prayer partner. We all need prayer partners, discipleship. Praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. That's what discipleship's all about. Is there room to grow, yes or no? Yes. Let me say it again. I didn't hear any no's, but let me make sure. Is there room to grow in your life? then make a decision to do it. Now, before you leave this camp, you have opportunities. You have good men, seasoned men that love the Word of God, that love you, that know how to teach it. Don't press the pause button. Become a disciple. Don't ever come to the place where you're just self-satisfied. I've done enough. I don't need to do anymore. Get rid of that notion out of your mind. We all can grow. We all can do better. We can all love Jesus more than we do. That's why things like Matthew 6, 19 and 24 and 33 in, in Colossians chapter 3, 1 and 2, that's why they're in the Bible. If God only had to say them one time, we wouldn't read so many passages in the Scripture that commend us and encourage us to put Him first. Love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. First commandment, number one, are you there? That's where we're supposed to be going. The plan, the method, is discipleship. is to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Many of you are new Christians in here. Many of you are new. And I know you've heard this before, but you're hearing it from a different voice, from a different person, and maybe it'll sink in. Maybe it'll become important to you. I want to finish this up. Let me finish this up. Let's look at verse 11. Now, God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase. Increase. Is there room? And abound in love. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. I look out in this crowd, this multicultural crowd. This is the way it ought to be. It isn't always this way, and it's not necessarily for negative reasons, but your leaders have put together a multicultural congregation for this camp. This is the way it's supposed to be. Only 4% of the world's population lives in America. I know you didn't know that. You think we're the only people on the face of the earth, don't you? 96% of the world's population doesn't live here. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. It doesn't stop at Kansas City or Lee Summit or any of the towns around here, Independence, Missouri, or Rochester, New York. Go into all the world. I've watched through Kansas City Baptist Temple and churches that they fellowship with and churches like yours, I've watched people go out into the world, all over the world, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. 
we need to grow. We need to spread out. We need to go everywhere to keep the Lord's commands. Increase! Increase! Abound! toward one another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end, or for the purpose. This is the bottom line, that to the end he may establish your hearts. What do you really love? What's really important in life? Where are your priorities? That's where Mark went last night. Once I know I'm risen with Christ, it's time for me to get my priorities readjusted as an individual. I need to get my heart in what God's heart is in. Not just what I like, what's important to my friends, what my hobbies are all about, what makes me feel good or what makes me feel important. I need to find God's heart. Where is God's heart? What does God love? And that's what I'm supposed to love. Unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now let me tell you why that's important. That's important because I hear there's going to be a prophecy conference. Is that going to be at New Philadelphia? In October. October. A prophecy conference. You say, well, you know prophecy. Every chapter in this book ends with a prophetical statement and promise. Look at Go back to chapter 1, and I'll, I'll pray when I'm done with 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Look at the end of chapter number 1. It says, look at verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols, repentance, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. You see that? He ends with a prophetical statement. Hey, hey, hey! Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. Don't get worn out, don't give up, don't quit now. This isn't the time to quit. Jesus is coming. Look at chapter 2, verse number 19. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye at, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is coming. Hey, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Don't forget that. Don't forget. That ought to motivate and encourage us. Look at the end of chapter number three. It says, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming. I heard it enough. Do you have to tell me again? I know he's coming. I get it. I saw it in chapter one. I see it in chapter two. What are you wasting all this print for to tell me a third time? What do you think I am, dense? Yes, I do. Jesus is coming soon. Look at chapter number four, the end of chapter number four. It says, and this is a classic passage on the rapture, verse 17, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Jesus is coming, and he's coming for you. He's coming for you. He's going to come, and he's going to get us out of here. But while we're here, we need to occupy till he comes. Look at chapter 5. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh is a thief in the night. Prophecy. And look at verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless oh, unto the coming of our Lord. I get it. 
get it. Jesus is coming. That's what we're waiting for. Jesus is coming. Why do we do this? Why are we here? Why have you taken time away from work? Why have we come out to this town of 20,000 people to get together like this? Why have we done it? Why have we spent our money? Why do we bring our kids to this? I'm going to tell you. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He hasn't come yet. But he's coming. And his coming is closer today than it was when I trusted Christ as a Savior, as my Savior back in 1972. And whenever you trusted him as your Savior. That is. If you did. Did you? Let's try that. Let's try that. How many of you would say, I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I can go back to a time or maybe a date or a place or a set of circumstances. You don't have to bow your heads. It's not an invitation. But I know that if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. Yes, I'm a child of God. Would you raise your hand way up in the air? Praise the Lord. Are you looking forward to him coming for us? Are you looking forward to that? You and I are risen with Christ. Amen. I'm crucified with him. I died on the cross with him. But now I'm risen with Christ. Crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That's the baptism that Mark was talking about. I'm baptized into Christ, and Christ is in me by faith. Crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. Christ liveth in me, in the life that I now live in the flesh. Yes or no? I live by the faith of the Son of God. True or false? Father, we're grateful and thankful for the word of God this morning. Lord, I want to just be an encouragement and a help to all of these good and dear people. It's an honor, it's a privilege, and I appreciate any opportunity I have to open the Bible and share my thoughts and your word with people. I thank you for the pastors that have agreed to have me to be here. And I've enjoyed myself, my wife. We've had a wonderful time in getting to meet new people and renew acquaintances with old friends. But Lord, we're here for business. So help us truly to make decisions that will be lasting beyond walking out of these doors and getting in our cars and going back home on Saturday. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Go ahead, preacher. You want me to? Okay.